This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hey everyone, welcome to the last part of our in-depth uh, movie review sub-series where we've been uh, going through the Dune movie and uh, breaking it down scene by scene. Uh, so really excited to, to get into the that last section of the, of the movie, uh, discuss the, the ending and, and all of our, our thoughts uh, on, on all that. So this is uh, Marcus uh, here today, uh, Garen. Hey, it's Garen again. It's good to be on the show again and talk through the deep stuff. That's what I like. Yes, everyone. Johnny Sobchak back. We are in the home stretch, fellas. Uh, it's been a long, fun kind of journey recapping it and just re- rediscovering, kind of re-enjoying uh, every little scene and detail and hearing. I just love hearing other people's perspectives. That's why, you know, this is fun and I hope other people are enjoying it too. Uh, Simon here. And yeah, this is apparently the last part of the review. Let's see if we can knock it out. Right, boys? <laughs> Yeah, so before we go into that, let's just go quickly into one uh, quick movie news story. Dune Movie News. So last week we talked about the um, home video release of Dune. So we know that the the, the Blu-ray, the uh, 4K Ultra HD and DVD versions, so all the physical disc releases will be on January 11th. And we have the full details uh, there about uh, that there is indeed going to be about an, an hour of extras. So some of them appear to be uh, new. Uh, so hopefully we'll get some, some more details on, on there as it approaches. And uh, we couldn't say that last week because it wasn't confirmed yet. But now we know that the digital release is going to be on December 3rd. Uh, so you'll be able to purchase it for, uh, as they call, premium uh, digital ownership on platforms like uh, Amazon Prime Video and uh, Apple iTunes and wherever um, digital movies are, are sold. So, yeah, I guess that will be helpful for, for us and uh, and you. If you're looking to watch it over the, the holidays, that will be uh, the, the best uh, option to, to doing so. And uh, we had we had mentioned that already, like the movie is already available for digital purchase in in Europe, and I've seen that it's it's coming out in the next week or so, like even earlier. And for example, in, in South America, so it will it'll vary depending on on where you are. But uh, keep keep an eye out if if it hasn't released yet in in your country, uh, it should be like uh, releasing digital over the next uh, week or two, unless you're um, in Australia or New Zealand where the movie hasn't been released yet at all. So without um, further ado, let's just go straight into our, the last part of our movie review, and uh, yeah, just. Looking back, like obviously just just a book alone, the story of Dune. There's there's so much to talk about, but it's it really speaks to like all the layers of this this movie and all the the effort that went into it, and like uh, whether whether it's the the technical details or like how how they handled the, the editing. That there's just so much to talk about. I mean, we've we've already been discussing just the movie alone for the past uh five five episodes and this is the, the sixth one where we're, we're wrapping it up and i think we could we could go on and like uh keep going to this movie in more detail and we probably will further down the line but there's just yeah there, there's so, so much uh depth to this this movie um i think uh people are going to be, be talking about this for for years uh, ahead especially uh, with the the next part uh coming up so the first um scene we're going to look into is when uh, Paul is actually exiting the still tent. So we've, we've really had a, a moment, which is that coming of age moment uh, for, for Paul, um, almost like a, well, basically like a rebirth. 
and uh, symbolically that he's basically like coming from from outside like using that uh, sand compactor to, to get out of the uh, the still tent and he's basically arising uh, out of the ground uh, so uh, yeah r- really powerful scene and uh, as as he comes out you see the the little Maldiva uh, running around so uh, starting with with you Simon what was your uh, Im- impression of, of Paul's uh, uh, rebirth in this sense. You know, it's funny. I didn't think about him again rebirth. Um, as we said in the previous episode, this is where Paul is to no point of no return. Um, the thing I loved the most about the scene was seeing the little mouse again. I love that they're hinting at the mouse. If you know what it is, and I hope they mention why we saw so much of the mouse in the second part, it is crucial especially for someone's name and the name that they will carry on for the rest of their lives. I, this is one of my favorite parts of the movie, especially the first time I saw the movie because I wasn't expecting it. I hadn't really seen or heard anything about this little, this little guy showing up. So I was very pleasantly surprised. Of course we do get uh, uh, an image of him earlier in the movie with the film book, but it, so it was nice that they kind of planted that, that seed and then it, it comes forward here when he does show up and, Without fail, every single time I've seen the movie, all five times in theaters, because it's very quiet and very, uh, it cuts to the outside of the tent. And and then it does a very tight close-up on this mouse that comes up the hill. <laughs> and people are, and it's just like, oh, like, it's just like this little release after this very intense sequence. So uh, just really great uh, timing. And, and uh, for the fans of the book, they are going to go crazy for that because they know what it means for people who have no idea what it means. It's just a cute mouse and just gives you kind of another glimpse into the, you know, ecological world of Arrakis, which I think is great. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly uh, what struck me. Uh, it, it the, the movie kind of shifts from this really intense uh, energy and, and suddenly you're you're in the middle of this desert and, and every shot is very quiet and serene until we get to the next sort of uh, event. But it's very contemplative. It's almost like, you know, the, the attack and, you know, Paul realizing what's ahead and he sees the future and 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 they've escaped. They're, they're at least alive at this point. So it's almost like the audience gives a big sigh of relief at this point in the movie, just because, okay, they lived. It looks like they're going to live a little longer, uh, as far as you can tell. But these scenes are just gorgeous. I mean, just the and 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 what's interesting is, um, unlike what I remember in some of the other versions of this of the story, it's it's all very muted. I mean, part of the rest of this story takes place actually at night, right? So it should be dark, but everything is just muted in terms of its its lighting, but yet it's just uh, gorgeous seeing this planet, seeing this, you know, endless dunes as far as the eye can see, and then the rock formations are just gorgeous. So for me, you know, this, this is a little bit of a respite, but then very quickly you're reminded all is not safe, right? Um, there's other things at work beneath the surface. So um, I, I like the bonding. I, I like the connection that you still feel between Paul and Jessica, even though their relationship has gone through some some changes. Um, you know, Paul Paul reprimands his mother in the still town, as we talked about last time. 
but yet they're together in this, you know, they're, they're united uh, despite their challenges. So um, yeah, there's, it's, it's a bit of a break, I think for the audience, but, but you don't get, you don't get a break for long. So. Uh, Paul and Jessica get uh, reunited with, with Duncan Idaho. So like there's the ornithopter that, that comes down and there's a tense moment. You think, okay, are these going to be like Harkonnens uh, again, like come to get them? But like they, they soon realize that it's, it's Duncan Idaho. And uh, immediately like you, you realize that uh, something has, has changed. Um, so I'll start with, with you, Johnny. Like what, what did you take away about this uh, encounter? I love Jason Momoa running up uh, and and just like embracing them, and he immediately, you know, kind of kneels and um, you know they all we all know what it means, and Paul is the Duke now, and he is the the heir. So I think it just it's kind of like this moment of realization because there's also the shots where once he kneels, you see Jessica looking at them, the two of them, and like, oh my god, like this is actually happening. And uh, Paul kind of it cuts to him and it, it seems like he kind of feels the same way. Like he's just kind of looking down almost like in disbelief. And he's, it's like, it's almost like another wave of like realization that I, my father's gone. I'm the Duke. Um, everyone essentially is gone uh, for all intents and purposes, except me, my mother and Duncan Idaho. I mean, pretty much this is House of Trades right now. That's it. I like the change that, that comes over, not only in the still tent, but also in this scene in Paul. Um, you know, you, you, I don't think he, the reaction on his face was he wasn't expecting Duncan to kneel down and, and declare his, his loyalty to him as the, as the Duke. But it's like he embraces it when it happens. It, it comes as a bit of a shock, but then he, he, he takes it on. And, and Jessica kind of accepts it is what the look on her face was uh, from my point of view. From this point on, he has a different energy around him. He has a different demeanor. Um, that that young man that we see with his father early on in the film that is doubtful of himself, you know, am I really the future of House Atreides? You don't see that. You don't see that person anymore. It's it's a it's a it's a change in him. And I that's the that's the arc of this character that's so great to see uh, in this film and and what will happen later in the next film as well, which will be pretty mind-blowing to those that don't know the story. If you contrast this scene, uh, just going back a, a bit earlier, like b before the attack, like when, when Deccan Idol had, had returned and, you know, it was the first time that Paul was seeing him after, after a month, uh, uh, because Duncan Hado had gone earlier and, you know, you have that friendly hug and like uh, Paul was, you know, like he had that huge smile on, on his face and like contrast that to, to now, you see that the relationship dynamic has, has changed. This isn't like a case of like two close friends or that like younger brother, older brother dynamic, but this is like, now Paul is like really reflecting, like he realizes that he is the Duke and like uh, Duncan Idaho is, is showing like this, this great deference towards him you know like he re realizes also like this is you know the, the head of the house like this is where where my my loyalty lies so that that whole relationship has basically trans transformed uh, literally of, overnight and there there is that sense of heaviness uh with with paul you know when when duncan first kneels and like i think it takes a moment for for paul to understand what's going on and he's like reflecting but he you know he realizes everything you know like my, my father is is dead like i'm i'm the duke now then we go to the um, 
uh, seen in the movie. It's like a, a, a longer segment at the, the ecological uh, testing station. So basically, so if you read some of the ex expanded books, you might know some of the, the lore there about how it's already been for a long, long time that they were working on uh, looking at, uh, you know, bring, bring back more plant life uh, to, to Arrakis. You know, as I was watching it the first time, I was like, there should be that scene. And I didn't remember if we saw that earlier on when we first land on Arrakis, we see one of those stations or later, you know, it's also such a huge set. Like the scene with the ornithopter when they land and when they take off again, it's so massive, you know, and when the Sadakar come in and the whole fight with Duncan, which we'll talk about shortly, it's just such a huge set. I never pictured it that big. Like in the books, I always thought these stations were like maybe a quarter of that. They're escaping the, the, the coming storm. So they're, they're finding refuge. If you remember, they, they, they tie down the ornithopter. They uh, almost like tent stakes, you know, and, and they're putting this cover over it so that it doesn't, I mean, I don't know. It probably does get covered uh, much the same way the still tent did, but at least they have a way to, to get it out and all the gear is not destroyed. But they're going into this ecological uh, testing station as a refuge and and what I find interesting about this is, you know, they're they're sort of you you feel like this is a safe place. Um, I I love the coffee service thing. I think that's really a great way to kind of showcase how little water there is that they have to work with. And here, you know, Leah asks them to to bring them coffee service, and they it's somehow they make coffee out of just well they don't finish it, but they try to make coffee out of just a few you know, people spitting into this machine. and But that's the way it is. That's how the Fremen work. They have very little water to work with, but they they have uh, an abundant life nevertheless. But I, I also like how you you have Paul, he keeps questioning Liet. <laughs> he keeps asking her, what's your deal? You know, and, and of course she's very, uh, she avoids it until uh, a certain scene a little later on in this segment. Um, but I, I like how we're following the book. This is this is in the book, but you're following these characters and they're still the relationships are still expanding. You know, we're still learning more about them. And and I, I also love how we see Duncan's just like we just talked about a moment ago. We see Duncan, even though he's almost like the the older fun uncle to Paul. He's not now. He's. He's devoted. He's he knows his role, and he is loyal to the Duke, who is now Paul. So, um, yeah, uh, I agree with uh, Simon as well. It's it's a beautiful set. It's enormous, and and I I like that. I like that it feels like wow, this somehow was used before. In fact, Leah explains it when she's walking through the hall. She says, you know, this was used to transform the the planet before spice was discovered and then it became uh, a source of spice for the the whole world the whole the whole galaxy or universe so it's almost like this thing was used to transform and 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 that can happen you know later if if those of you who've read the books understand that part but it has some history it's also a refuge but but then some really exciting things happen in this sequence just to kind of add on to the other comments here that I, I certainly agree with and feel the same way. The 
there's one thing in particular that hasn't really been mentioned, but every time that I watch the movie and Duncan walks into that room where the, there's the plants growing, it's just like, it's like a shock to the system because there has been no green or any sort of plant life for so long at this point in the movie to see that vibrant color and like just the little tiny details and textures on the plant and the leaves. Like it, it really, um, it's just nice. Like there's, there's, I mean, we are earth bound creatures. So there's something to be said for, for plant life uh, and greenery. And, and so I think that just those little psychological things that that go on in this movie and, and in Villeneuve's movies. So, so I thought that was just really interesting. And also back to the point about the coffee, I love, I love the coffee uh, bit in this because it just adds a little bit more to the Fremen. It just, you know, textures their culture a little bit. It r- recalls the spitting that happens earlier in the movie with Stilgar when he comes in, spits on the table and it's a sign of respect. And, uh, you know, it's moisture that, the reason they value their moisture in that way. And we, we see that now is that they can use it for things like this. It, it's not something that they just take for granted and they're not, they're not just going to be spitting on the ground. Like some of us would be, you know, just walking around. There is the moment where there is a kind of a one-on-one meeting of the minds or battle of the minds between Paul and Leah and Jessica is just kind of watching on. And there is this, you kind of start to see glimpses of Paul Moadi. Like this is not Paul Atreides anymore. He is coming around to the, the acts of manipulation and he is leveraging himself politically and basically making a play for the throne, which is exactly what Liet says. And it's, it's pretty audacious. And she's just like, you have no idea what the hell you're talking about. And of course, what he's going to go on to do, you know, if Liet knew what was going to happen, she'd probably cut his head off right there. But, you know, she, she really can't there. And there is part of her. She says like, as a throwaway line is superstition, it's just superstition. And it's like, are you, are you like saying that? Cause you believe it. Or are you saying that? Cause you're trying to like convince yourself that it's just superstition. that This isn't something to be acted on. And ultimately she does, you know, acts to assist them and to help them survive. And, you know, <laughs> that has huge consequences for the rest of the, the universe. Um, and that's, uh, it's just funny how these micro moments end up being so important. Uh, and then also there is the, uh, the tiny detail, which of course we've all seen probably multiple times at this point, not even just outside the movie, but there's the beetle that returns that was in the, the dream, the vision earlier in the movie, where there's that hall just full of starter car bodies and there is there's Duncan in there laying on the ground and there's a beetle just crawling along the ground and in this moment while they are having this discussion Duncan is out in the hall and he is looking at this beetle and he like is putting his hand on it he has it on his hand and it's interrupted of course by this attack that's about to happen and there we, you guys have probably seen the mentions and the kind of readings of this beetle because Villeneuve himself speaking on this moment and what it means within the film itself, the the kind of symbolism of this interruption. He says that it was inspired by seven samurai. And there's this moment I've seen samurai one time and it was a few years ago. So I don't remember exactly, but there is a moment where someone is in a, like almost in a field and they're picking flowers and kind of messing with these plants 
and in the distance you hear this violence and the, these swords clattering and you know that this person is about to be you know enveloped by this attack and you know it's like despite the violence and the death that is kind of oncoming they're still finding this quiet moment in that with nature and with the natural world and that is you know cut off by this this violence but also and i i want to hear what you guys think about this and if you've already heard it but the actual symbolism of the beetle itself but i thought there was a really interesting reading and i'm going to pull it up because i do have it uh saved actually and the fact that the beetle you know it has some kind con- like connotations to it uh and its meaning as an animal um that i found particularly uh enticing and basically it was just saying that beetles are in European culture, beetles are, they kind of represent bad omens or death, um, which of course there's this bad omen that the Sardaukar are now showing up and are about to kill everyone that's there. But in Egyptian culture, of course, and this is seen, you know, with, uh, you know, ancient Egyptian culture with the pharaohs and, and pyramids and whatnot, but the beetle rep- represents renewal and rebirth and a second life for these pharaohs and, and other figures. So, it's very fitting that, that Duncan, um, this this Twitter user, uh, a friend of Jamis or Jamis, says it's fitting then that Duncan leaves a Eurocentric planet for a desert setting and stumbles upon this beetle at the time that he does, and that it is this character. So it is kind of this meaning within a meaning, uh, within a meaning, which is just like you know, there's nothing that's coincidence in this movie and in a lot of these films. So I just love that, and I. I have been wanting to talk about that a little bit more. Um, and uh, I, I was really glad someone was thinking along those lines and kind of pointing that out. It's taking everything in me not to spoil something for later books. But let's just say there's a reason why that beetle is there and you said it and it wasn't the European culture one. I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Um, and we all know that Denis, he, he thinks this deep as well. And you're right. Uh, nothing is left a chance in these films. Every, every shot, every scene is composed. So the decision to use a beetle, um, kind of fits, it all checks, it checks all the boxes really. Um, because it could be there, that that's like an insect that could probably survive, I would imagine in that kind of environment, but it's a huge foreshadowing, right? Um, not only of what's about to happen, um, but what happens with Duncan Idaho, which is a, a very long uh, interaction throughout the rest of these these stories. We leave that scene with Duncan staring right into the camera. You know, just that always hits me really hard with you know the symbolism of the beetle, his loyalty to House Atreides. He gives his life for uh, for uh, Paul and Jessica. Um, and, and there's just a lot of symbolism there. So, you know, I'd love to go into all the spoilers. We could probably have another hour and talk about the future of what we're talking about. Um, but I'll, I'll leave that to Marcus to direct us on that. And there, there, there are a lot of factions in the Dune universe that we, we haven't seen yet. Uh, you, you know, wh- whether it's, uh, for example, the, the guild navigators, the the full ones that we haven't actually seen how they how they look like. 
Uh, and then, of course, there, there's another faction that isn't like uh, doesn't factor into the first book, but then they're very important in the second book uh, onwards. And this beetle is uh, obviously a, a connection to that that faction. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Like e even in all these scenes where you, you don't always see like uh, factions like physically present. You know, like for example, last uh, last week we talked about in, in attack. You heard some of the the music from the Bene Gesserit. Uh, so that that theme. So it's, it's clear that like all these factions are at play, like whether they're actually present at, at that moment or not. So, yeah, it, it just is so reassuring that it's uh, Denis Villeneuve who he's filming this and like someone who knows not just the first book, but the series well and is able to make uh, all these connections uh, looking ahead to the future. We continue to see much more character development in this scene, especially in, in Liet Kynes, because we, we've seen several moments of her earlier. But here we, we really understand that, you know, like th this is a, a leader of, of the, the Fremen. So we, we see how she she talks to them and, you know, like they, they obey un unquestionably. So you begin to understand, you know, you're like this other aspect of her. She's not just uh, part of the Imperium, but she's also really is the, the leader of the, of the Fremen which was uh, hinted to uh, further. And then in that conversation, um, f first, first when she's talking to Paul in the hallway and then later on when they're, when they're in the room with, with the plants, we, we also get a, a sense of like the, the history and the, the deep lore, which I really appreciated when, when I was watching the movie, especially on the, the rewatches. Like, first of all, like um, she's, she's talking about how this, this station like was a, it's a legacy site. Uh, basically in the, in the past, they were trying to, you know, bring uh, plant life to Arrakis and, you know, it would have been a paradise, but then the spice was discovered. And then like all those, those plans uh, changed and, you know, the focus was on, on spice harvesting. And then you get a sense of this, this history and this, um, the reason for the, for the conflict, because of course the, the Fremen, uh, you know, they're, they're interested in this, uh, in this, this promise of, you know, being able to, to live in a, in a paradise. But then like now there's all this, this tension because, you know, the whole universe is relying on this substance that's only found on, on their planet. So there's there's that tension. And you realize how the reason why they're fighting from the very beginning for this, this past 80 years against the, the Harkonnens, that, that ongoing conflict that's been going for, for generations, even before uh, Kynes was was their leader. So this you get a sense of the history of the planet. Um, and then when uh, Leah and, and Paul are having that discussion about, you know, like uh, Paul making a play for the, the, the throne. And as, as John, you were, you were mentioning, like, you know, she, she doesn't grasp that, you know, like what she's saying now, it, it is a, an actual possibility, but you, you get a sense of that that balance of, of powers because it's it's really is a situation where you have all these these checks and balances. Of course, you do have the the emperor, the Imperium faction, House Crino, who are... Uh, Basically, like the the, the most important uh, house in in the galaxy because they're they're the he's he's the emperor and like we've we've seen like all the other characters uh, have reference to him about you know his his power and what type of personality he has, but then you also have the the houses of of Lonsrod and that's alluded to here like basically if uh, the other houses realized what was happening to House Atreides here, like how this, this noble house, one, one of the, these houses that was respected by so many other houses, how they were simply like um, behind the, the scenes, like eliminated by, by the emperor. If all the other houses knew this, then they would 
potentially join forces and uh, rise up against the emperor. And, you know, then they would have the power because then then they would be, be knighted. And we've, we've already talked previously about, you know, the, the other factions uh, such as the, the guild and the Bene Gesserit. So there, there's all these different power structures that we uh, we get an idea uh, from. So I thought that there was just so much lore and, and history uh, in, in, in that scene. And uh, yeah, we, we see Paul thinking uh, ahead, like several steps ahead based on what he's seen in, in his vision. So it's uh, yeah, really, really a lot to, to dig into, like every time I rewatch this. Let, let's, let's move into the, the action. So, you know, this really underscores the bond that you see uh, you've you've experienced in the movie between Duncan and Paul. Um, I, I thought Timothy Chalamet just nailed the look on his face when he sees Duncan, uh, you know, going down the hall. He makes the connection that Duncan is gonna is gonna fight and protect them. But then when he locks the door, you know, Paul Paul just really kind of loses all composure because he he realizes wait a minute, he's saving us, but how, how can he withstand, you know, uh, the Sardaukar? And of course, you know, Duncan is, is, a, is a master leader and, and swordsman and, and fighter. So he does, he does an amazing job. Um, obviously, this is a very heroic character. We, you know, I mean, he's, he's literally, you know, taking out dozens and you know, I don't know how many, I didn't count, but a lot of Sardaukar and, and then he is overwhelmed and, and he, he's impaled and then that still doesn't stop him, right? And, and that, that's a very, um, at, at first it could come across as disbelief, like, wait a minute, how, how could he do that? Um, but having watched the movie a number of times now, there's a quick shot that shows him on the ground with the with the sword in his in his body, but he's not dead. You can actually see movement, and I don't know if it's the look on his face. So then, when he rises up, after you watch this film a few times, it is very believable, and it's a it's an incredible moment, right? The way he he does everything he can at the last minute. Uh, to protect so that, that that laser cutter that's going through the door can can stop so that the uh, the, gr- the group can leave and escape. So heroic to the very last breath and uh, just a lot of great sword fighting and 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 you, you hear and you see the shields and it's 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 great. It's fun. It's tragic, but it's cool. Yeah, and Garen, I I, lo- I like that you touched on. On that because we had a couple of viewers who had uh, like written about that that question and went to the email address about you know, like was it really believable about that fight how he took down so many and then like he he, he got up uh, so uh, Johnny like uh, did you have any any thoughts on that? Yeah, Gary made some great points. I think you know it's funny because I saw <laughs> one of uh, my friends uh, online was saying that. I guess it was a criticism of, of the movie or like this in particular, maybe, but he was just like, this guy is supposed to be the best. I, and I was shocked because I had not seen this take anywhere else until he had said it. And I was just like, really? Um, and so I, uh, but he said, this guy is the, you know, the best fighter in the universe, but he loses his, his first fight is essentially what they said. And I was like, he just killed like, an entire like squadron of 
of starter car who are like clearly shown to be much better than any of the regular Atreides uh, soldiers. Like that was the one thing I thought if you really couldn't like poke a hole in was just how well they showed the kind of power and ability levels between the soldiers, um, the Atreides. And it all happens kind of in that, that scene on the stairs all the way back at Arakeen where, you know, there's the Atreides are in a terrible situation, but they are still taking on the Harkonnens like no problem. Um, they're making their last stand. And then when the Sardaukar get involved, it's just way too much. And they are just like killing them. Um, and then of course, Duncan's able to fight his way out. And, but when they're so overwhelmed, like when they drop down into the actual facility, which is an amazing shot and sequence, by the way, where the Fremen are hiding in the, the Fremen are sitting there with their coffee. There's this amazing over the shoulder shot. They have, there's some dialogue happening, uh, in their language, which, is great because it also is hinting at more it's giving more from and culture. It's also elaborating on the, the myth of Paul. And then the, it's just this over, like he just like turns and he can, it's like, you know, he just noticed something. <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden it just, it's just so well cut together and just the little subtleties, but anyway, it's building up and there's, but the way they all drop down and there's so many of them again, I didn't count them all myself, but there's like 20, 25 and, it's it, you're like, there's just no way they're going to get out of this. The fact that they do take as many down as they do, the Fremen do a good job. And then Duncan by himself clearly shows himself to be like the most badass, capable warrior, like alive. But what's so great about it is even though he is the most badass, capable warrior, he is not invulnerable. He is not uh, undefeatable, impervious to uh, getting hit or getting uh, you know, stabs through the chest. Like it, there's only so much he can do. He's not a superhero. So I thought that was a great. And, and it's, it's funny too, because it is different from the book to some degree, although very much similar. Um, but when he goes down that first time, there is that great shot where he's on the ground. And if you watch multiple times, you will notice, yes, he is, his eyes are open. He's kind of like writhing. But the first time I saw it, when he got, stabbed and then he got knocked over and kind of punched out. I was like, wow. I was like, that's it. He's done. I was like, there's no way he's going to get up. And, but it's funny because there was, and I guess maybe they had see maybe CG'd out the sword or maybe they CG'd in the sword and left it out for some of the promo material. But we had seen that shot before many times where he comes up and is yelling and then starts swinging his swords. And it's like, you'd have no idea that there's these other bodies behind him and there's all this stuff going on just previously. So I was so wrapped up in it when it was going on that when he, when the camera does go behind them and it shows Duncan standing up, I was, I was like, Holy cow. Like, wow. I am like amped up right now because he, this guy is a badass, like to the very end. And I, and I just didn't expect that. And then, so that's just how a uh, testament to the filmmaking where I had seen that shot of him getting up so many times before and attacking them from behind. And it just kind of like, you know, passed out of my mind because of that. So I thought it was great. And again, the way he goes out, he is distracting them. He, he basically knows he's sacrificing himself. Like he doesn't expect to make it out of this, of course, but he just does everything that he can until he can't until he's overwhelmed. And I, I love, there's this flurry of edits right before he gets knocked down for the last time. And it's like, they are just like hacking away on this dude. Like they are, there's just, they are, are, it's brutal. Um, and of course, 
PG 13. So it's fairly like it, and the way it's edited though, like you, you know how brutal it is, but you don't see like a lot of blood or like gore or anything necessarily because it is, you know, not rated R. So I, I just thought that was really well done. And then of course, as Garen mentioned earlier, and I, I mentioned this on Twitter a few weeks back, I think after the last time I saw it, when he falls and the very last shot you see of him is kind of like this close up, like push in on his face and just his eyes open, looking directly into the camera. Uh, I, I, people were going nuts when I was talking about that. So I think when, uh, when the, the story of Duncan's character, you know, uh, continues at some point down the line <clears throat> in whatever form or fashion that that takes, there are certainly elements that they can pull directly from the scene and be like, people are going to be able to go back and look at, look at that, look at this. Um, whether it's, it's, uh, something related to the beetle or related to that last shot. Like, I just, I just love everything about how he goes out in the scene and the music, of course, Hans Zimmer, um, the score certainly amplifies the, you know, the dramatics of, of what's happening. My first reaction too, and thank you, Garen, for mentioning that because my first reaction was like, holy crap, he got up. And it was the second time I watched it being like, okay, so he wasn't really stabbed all the way. Like I thought, and for the person that was like, well, Duncan's the best fighter in the universe. He got his butt kicked. Also, he's been on the run for a couple of days. He might be a little bit tired. I don't know. You know, LeBron James doesn't always score 40, 50 points every night, you know. But it's also crucial that something does happen to Duncan to move Paul and Jessica's story along, you know, and as a big Duncan Idaho fan, I mean, one of my dogs is named Duncan. So that shows you how much I love that character. I thought it was a really beautiful way to end his journey for now. And it's just, Mama is just like, I'm, I only seen like 10 minutes of Aquaman. So I was like, this movie's horrible. So I turned it off. But this, I was like, wow, he can actually like fight and perform and the whole entire thing also when he puts up the sword like this, I read or I've seen somewhere that it's a tribute to his son because his son does a certain kind of martial arts and it's kind of like how they bow to each other. So it makes it even a little bit more special. And I do think it is important that you see the fear in Paul being like, wait, if Duncan can't get out of this, then we need to run like now. <laughs> like we need to get out of here like ASAP because it is not safe for us. It's a great scene. Um, would I love to see more Duncan all through the movie? Yes. But that's what makes him awesome that we get to see him a little bit here and a little bit there. And it's also a flash, it's not a flashback. It's a calling of earlier in the movie when he's like, I saw you die on Arrakis. So mm -hmm. it's foreshadowing early on. There's so many little clues to this movie to like, if you really want to cut it down, like being like, this was mentioned before, this shouldn't be a surprise. I have to I have to cut Simon off real quick, even though he's he's done talking now. Um, <laughs> I I will go to bat for Aquaman every day of the damn week because that is a great fun action fantasy adventure movie. But that's besides the point. I do agree that Aquaman, <laughs> Jason Momoa, he is Aquaman. He is Duncan Ido. He's Kyle Drogo. This guy is like the fantasy like you know, sci-fi character God at this point. Um, 
And but what's amazing is I never once thought about his other iconic characters watching this movie. And that's a testament to Denise's direction and Jason's performance, which is, I think it is his best. I think he's very committed and he really, I mean, he said this a lot publicly that he really didn't want to mess this up and he wanted to prove Denis right and, and really earn the role the right way. So I think he should be super proud of what he did. And I do like you, I really like how you mentioned that little salute is that something that he brought to the role because of his son. And I think that's really awesome. Now um, that's just something that, you know, it, it's, it, you can read other meanings into it. If you don't know that story, you can just think it's something in the world, but it's, it's kind of both now. So I think that's really cool. And um, it's something that comes back later, of course, with Paul. So. And to, to close on, on, on that scene, I think there, there are like a couple of things that, that, that do make this like really believable for, for me in the end. Like, first of all, like, as we mentioned, like Duncan Idol is, has a reputation as one of the greatest uh, fighters. You know, he's a, 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 like a great sword master. And he's basically been, since he was like uh, 80 years old, he was like uh, surviving, like on the streets of, um, of House Harkonnen, like fighting against uh, like adults to, to survive and, and make his, his, his escape. So, so this, this is someone who's, you know, like been, been living on, on fighting since, since, since a young, young age. And um, from the Sardaukar perspective, you know, their, their objective is to basically eliminate uh, Jessica and, and Paul, like that's their focus, you know, so like they, they take down uh, Duncan, they basically think, okay, he's, he's down. And then they're focused like quickly on getting the, the door. So yeah, they, they, they probably like left, left, uh, like him to the side. They, they, they assumed, you know, he was, he was down. He wasn't going to, going to get up again. Uh, but, uh, yeah, obviously they, they underestimated, uh, underestimated him, uh, in that regards. Uh, but yeah, like, like, I think it was, uh, like a really, uh, touching scene. And I think, uh, it, it definitely indicates like the, the importance of this character. And I, I'm, I'm glad that they, they, they didn't, did him justice in, in this adaptation. Then of course we, things start to like, uh, get uh, tense again. So we, we've had sort of some quiet moments at the beginning of this, this new chapter, but now it's basically, they, they have to like get out of there, like, uh, get, get in on, on an ornithopter, like uh, escape into the, to the storm. And then we have the, the sequence where, uh, Leah Kynes, uh, herself, she, she goes out and then she's going to call, a, uh, call a sandworm and she gets, uh, gets, gets taken out, uh, starting with, with you, Simon, like with these, these things happening in, in parallel, what, what drew you in the most? That last scene with her is just amazing. You know, that's one of my favorite chapters in the book when it's mostly her just talking about what Arrakis means to her and how much Shai Hulu. But I liked how they were able to give us some of that feeling and also take down a couple of saddle cards at the same time. You know, I love that she sets the thumper to call him, you know, and when she's like, I serve one person, Shai Hulu. It shows their commitment to the world of Arrakis and how much Arrakis means to them and how crucial her legacy is also. We'll find out, hopefully they mention it later on in the second movie, but who she's related to. It's just a heartbreaking scene. Like I knew it was going to happen that way, but still it's one of those very much like Alito this person is sacrificing their life. So I really like how this shows that, you know, Leah admits she's Fremen. I like that, that moment in the hallway where she, she comes mm -hmm. in on that. Um, she says it in a very, in a very clear, forceful kind of way. And then if, if you'll remember, she says, you know, I'm going to take the message 
to the Landsraad. Mm-hmm. And and so as, as you're watching this, and, and one of you guys will have to correct me. I don't remember if that's exactly how it, it plays out in the book. I, I don't recall that it plays out exactly like that. But the fact that you have this character who, as we were talking about earlier in the, in the dialogue between Leah and Paul, if this message were to get back to the Landsraad, that would have incredible consequences and, and chaos, right? But, you know, Paul wants the truth to be to be known among among the great houses. So as she's going out, um, and, and, and I recall that this is not how the character, now remember we've done a, uh, we've done a gender swap for this movie, uh, but in the book, uh, Liet doesn't die exactly this way. He, he does die in the desert in the book, but I love this adaptation. I love how this creates this moment where for people that aren't familiar, they don't know exactly what Liet is doing. Uh, we see the we see the sandworm wave coming. She she's up there on the on the dune top, and then she whips out these things that have hooks on them. And of course, us fans we go ballistic because we know exactly what's happening here. But then inside, we remember that this character doesn't necessarily have a a long uh, a long job in this film. So. The way this was, the way this was choreographed and 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 cut, I just thought was a great, powerful, exciting way to have this character go out. So, hats off to Denis for doing it this way. It is one of the best scenes in the movie, and I'm glad. Like I said, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book when it becomes this existentialist chapter of just talking to the reader, pretty much, and explaining how crucial. Arrakis says to them, it's a beautiful shot and it gets rid of the saddle cars in a way. I mean, this is a prime example of how brilliant they were adapting this novel because the way that Kynes dies in the book, I mean, it is not cinematic whatsoever. <laughs> like it is not, uh, it's not rife for, uh, you know, adaptation in a film. It's just, and not to say that I, I don't like that scene in the book, because I, th- I think it is great. And it, there's a very interesting thing going on there with narration and the dialogue and, and this other stuff, but it wouldn't really work. Like, and, and I knew for a long time that it was going to be something like this, that they were going to change it to. And yet I was still kind of taken by surprise and like enraptured by it when it did happen, because I guess I was just so caught up in the excitement of what was happening. And like, part of me was like, Oh, maybe she will get away. And like, they're going to do it later on or something, but nope. And I, and I, I thought it was brilliant how you, you do so much in this scene and you in, they pretty much had to do it from scratch because as I said, it is nothing like what it is in the book. Yes. She, he, the character dies in the desert in the book. It has nothing to do with worms. It has nothing to do with, start a car um but here in this scene they completely designed it so that she helps them get away helps paul and jessica get away which she does in the book as well then she goes and she's going to try to pass on word of this message um then it allows us to be introduced as the audience to a thumper we get some semblance of an idea of what that means the correlation between the worm the rhythm etc it's coming toward her as you know, Garen pointed out, she, she pulls out the hooks. Everyone who hasn't read the book is like, what the hell is that? <laughs> um, what is she doing? Um, 
And it's funny because I have watched some reaction videos, as I've said, and and I love it. It's a it's a multitude of reactions. It's like, oh, what what is she doing? Or like, is she gonna like do something with the worm? Like, is she gonna try to ride the worm? Like, what is going on there? And so I like that it doesn't. It's not exactly clear for everyone, just depending on how you think about it. And then of course, as it's getting closer and closer, we have this you know pretty tight close up on her, and then boom this water goes spraying out of her chest <laughs> and it's like it's like the chest like bursters from alien like it's not it's like this it's it is a violent action like she's getting stabbed of course but the water it's like the way they've built it up in this world and of course i'm speaking for myself but i'm sure it's i'm not the only one to be was that was affected in quite this way but the image of water spraying out of her chest in that way was so alarming because we know how valuable water is, of course. And we also know that the still suit is in it in of a, in of a itself loaded with water by design. And so when it, it punctured like that and it comes flying out, you're like, oh my God, like she just got stabbed. We don't have to see the starter car to realize, oh my God, what that just happened. And then, of course, she yells and, and drops down, and then the starter car is standing behind her. She rolls down the hill. These last three starter car troopers come over the hill, and, and just the way they come over it, and you're like, God, these guys are just, they are relentless. Like, you cannot stop them. And uh, and they also, again, we talked about their design before. We talked about the color of their, their uniforms and why I like them so much. They are just covered in blood at this point and dirty and grimy, and they look just very, uh, you know, unpleasant, which I think is very effective. And then there's that shot with the blade and, and kinds in the background. And then there's of course, where she gives the line, uh, you know, I, I'm, I am not serving the emperor. Like I am serving Shai Hood. So that's when the worm opens up. And of course, this is the second real scene with the worm in the movie. And I thought it was great. Uh, you just give, you're giving the audience a little bit more, of the worm and, and kind of like satiating us, uh, especially the book nerds that are just like, give us more worm. Um, and so when the mouth opens up and they drop in, you're like, that is, you love to see it. It's, it's a great badass like sacrificial scene for kinds. I think it's just a great way to go out for that character. I like the editing here because again, then, then they cut back to somewhere different and you're left wondering, you know, what, what happened to them? You know, leave it in a tense moment. Uh, so then we, we see, uh, basically uh Raban and he's he's entering the, the room and baron harkonnen is is in his mud bath recovering from his uh ordeal with the uh the poison poison gas in the in the room uh so quick thoughts on on this uh sign what, what did you think about uh getting to see the baron again well it's kind of the last time we see him in this movie isn't it so it shows him being truly disgusting especially after the previous time we saw him we thought he was dead and he rises from his death also if you really want to go into that meta. Then. And it's a good way to end the Harkonnen story for this part of the film, this part of the story, I mean. And just like, hey, nephew, squeeze, attack, kill them all. You know, because we know that Raban will have some reign now that the House of Atreides is gone. And I'm kind of glad that it ended like that with them. I actually really like the the mud oil bath or whatever thing that's that's not in the book that i recall um but the fact that you know he's he's having to heal um which i don't recall that being the book either but i like how it's very cinematic 
I find it really interesting that Raban is actually talking to him when he's underneath uh, the surface of this bath. I, I don't know, like somehow he can he can hear through it, but there's there's just there's a lot of apocalypse now imagery. You know, if you if you've seen that film, but to have him just be this is a very short scene. I, I saw it recently again, and it just it's very short. It's just mere seconds almost. But um, it's kind of establishing this this next phase of what Raban will do as as now controlling Arrakis, and and it also shows the just never ending greed of of the Baron. You know, it's like he just about gets killed, but he accomplishes his goal. He's 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 insatiable with wanting to harvest spice and become wealthy beyond belief and so he's back to that Raban's going to be his henchman it's going to it's going to go back to the standard procedure again and and a lot of spice production so i i think it's an important establishment that you know these guys are not out of the picture they are alive and well and the harkonnens are are gonna are gonna just squeeze the life out of this planet so they think totally agree with both of you and the yeah the, the main thing that sticks with me i guess with regards of course we're talking about the imagery and these other things but like what it leaves you on with regards to the harkonnens is ask he's raban asks about the fremen and baron says kill them all um yeah that's <laughs> that's gonna be uh you know they're going to have many many issues <laughs> going forward and because as as they pointed out earlier in the movie, they have no idea how many Fremen there are. They are actually way off <laughs> with their estimate. So, um, yeah, they have no chance of killing them all. And also, they aren't really aware of, you know, not just their number, but their capabilities as a culture. And, and really, to be fair, the Atreides, at least Paul and Jessica at this point, they're not really too sure of what they are capable of either they haven't been in a siege yet they haven't really been exposed to them so um yeah i like where that kind of leaves it with the baron uh and just i'm, I'm curious one thing i'm curious about is because he is b- being healed in the scene if there's going to be any residual damage to him in the next movie uh you know scarring or you know a burn or anything like that i'd be very curious i think that'd be kind of cool just aesthetically hey and you can make some more new toys because you have a new design to use but uh i think that that would that would make sense and i think that'd be just nice to see that there is some sort of there was um some sort of lasting effect like he just doesn't heal and he's just fine as if nothing happened i think it'd be nice just to keep some sort of at least a visual reminding us of what duke leto did at the very end uh yeah and then that was uh always here for, for Harkonnen for, for now. And then we go on to the last um, sort of stretch of the the movie where uh, we go back to Paul and Jessica. They're they are in the middle of this this storm. like, uh, And uh, yeah, it's, it's a really powerful scene because there's the, at this time, like Paul is being guided in his in his visions by, uh, uh, by, by, by Jameis. Like, so he's, he's basically seeing, uh, seeing him talking here and there are like several, uh, quotes uh quotes from from a book like the uh yeah like like the the, the mystery of, of life is is not something to to be discovered but to be experienced so like there, there there's a lot of uh, death in there and like eventually he um he releases the control and uh, controls and he says realize you know he just has to go with the flow of, of nature and uh, continue from from there uh garen what did you take away from this uh 
uh, storm scene. I know I've probably run out of this is my favorite scene of the of the movie <laughs> tokens, but honestly, you're cut off, Garen. A bit. <laughs> you can't hear me. No, no, we can hear oh, you. No, you're you're not. You're you're cut off from your tokens. Oh, period. sorry, I can't say anymore. Okay, <laughs> I did. I did admit it. Okay, this scene and the last time I, I watched it, I I loved it as much as I've ever loved it because it's it's very Zen Buddhist. It's it's very uh, philosophical, um, and I love the fact that you have Jameis saying this in the vision to Paul. So. Um, the more times I see this movie, the more I'm able to see all the, the disconnected future prescient visions that, that Paul is seeing. And each time I see it again, then I see how it fits together and how he wasn't, his, his prescient visions aren't exactly right. He, he admits that to, to uh, the Reverend Mother at the beginning of the film. But th this scene to me is, is just beautiful and i i know there's a lot that i could say about this but he lets go which is a, a tenet of zen buddhism you let go you go with the flow that's what james is telling him and then i love the fact that then they, he figures out a way to re-engage a few of the ornithopter wings to actually create a, a glider so two two or i don't know how many wings are on this ornithopter but there's two outward like wings on a plane and then he leaves one going backward as like the stabilizer on, a, on an aircraft. And, and then that scene is such, a, again, another release peaceful moment where they're just, you know, gliding through the above the storm, I believe is what's happening. And it's just beautiful. It's peaceful, but it's a great lesson, right? How often do we, we want to just fight in the middle of a challenge and put more energy and more effort into it. And Frank Herbert is teaching us, let go, go with the flow and allow things to happen. And then you'll find a way, you'll find a solution. So I'm getting all philosophical on you, but this is why I love the depth of this movie. You know, we go from an action scene with Duncan Idaho, which is just totally cool to this deep philosophical even you, even you could say religious kind of connotation to this scene. So, and, and then I love the sound of, of all the, the storm and the, the sand hitting the sides of the ornithopter. And if you, if you listen to this scene, it's really intense. You know, what you're talking about just letting go in a way, Pines did that a couple of scenes ago. Pines knew that their destiny was just to let go. You know, as someone that does practice Buddhism, there is that. And there's also this great Latin quote that says, Amor Fate, just love everything that happens. You know, I have that tattooed on me. You can't control certain stuff. And at this moment, Paul is very much embracing that Amor Fate, love my faith. Let's just get to safety and see what happens and not be like angry. Oh, Duncan died. You know, what's going to happen now? We got to keep moving. And one thing about Buddhism is you pretty much have to get your, your stuff together. You can't just sit there and be like, cool, I have Nirvana, I'm good. It's all about keep fighting, never giving up. You know, just keep fighting, keep fighting. And that's what Paul is. That's what they're doing. They're going on to their next part of their life, their next chapter of their life. They don't know what's going to happen. Paul might have visions, 
And Jameis might be his best friend right now in his head. There's something also very interesting about, I've been thinking a lot about the whole Jameis, I saw my death. Paul becomes a new Paul after what happens with him and Jameis. He is finally Paul, Maudid, Uso, you know, that we've heard about what will happen to him after his fight with Jameis. So there is a lot of rebirth in the last hour of this movie, I think. Spot on from both of you. I think this is certainly, again, something that isn't in the book. This is just a very, I mean, I love what Villeneuve did to include the the messaging, you know, as you have both rightly pointed out, like the Buddhist, uh, you know, teachings here. And that is, I mean, that's doom. I mean, right. Like that is a huge part of, of what Frank Herbert was trying to teach and things that he was trying to get across to his readers. Um, despite this being a huge $165 million sci-fi tentpole blockbuster, like it's amazing what they have been able to actually get into this thing. And, and, you know, I think it works. I, it is really, it's one of my favorite parts of this movie because it is so, it is really calming. And I have seen people like really kind of take to what Jameis is saying there and what it means within the context of the film and also just the larger narrative too. And so I, I think it's great. And then of course it's very, it leads to them escaping the storm and surviving and it's this tranquil, it goes from this storm, which is like in IMAX, probably by far the loudest part of the movie. <laughs> like it is in the, the sound design is phenomenal. It reminds me a lot of uh, Interstellar and, and uh, First Man, just the sound of up, up against the, the outside of the craft and, and the debris and everything. And of course, yeah, there's that great, tranquil, peaceful, very much the, you know, the, uh, what they were able to earn through listening to that messaging and, and get to the peaceful uh, other side of this thing. And then they glide. And then of course <laughs> the wings are start just breaking off this damn thing and they are flipping. They're doing a full on barrel rolls and it's like Zimmer scores like cranked up to the max and it's like really intense. And then they crash land and then they are fully, uh, you know, I don't want to say it once and for all necessarily, but they are in the desert and that is where they are going to be for quite some time. Yeah, this, this time of uh, in the desert, it's it's really, you know, we, we've had this uh, intense uh, sequences uh, one after the other. And now is the time where the movie really does have a chance to, to breathe. And I know that, you know, the, the cast members, uh, crew and some of the recent interviews, like you can also like see that we've we've written about. Uh, talk about that the beauty of like being in the desert of course you know there there's a, the the harshness you have to make sure you're drinking enough water like the storms were also an issue in in real life as well but overall there, there was this, like this, this huge um like uh all of like where where they they were and like film filming in these these vast uh landscapes and here you really get a, a chance to see that and it's it's really like a peaceful time like they they, they get in their their still suits like it takes some some time to show them tra traversing across the desert you get some some moments you know just them in the in the, in the open uh there is something really interesting in one of the shots when we see them i think they're sliding down of mountain it is an homage of the original cover hardcover of the book the first printing ever yeah, and then we've we've seen the the sandworm 
uh, already two times in the, in the movie, but like here, here at the end where they have to make that uh, nighttime uh, crossing across the, the, the sand areas and then like the, the worm comes and they actually see it uh, up, up close. Uh, so, so I'm in reactions to seeing the, the sandworm like basically right in front of them. So once again, IMAX, uh, definitely worth seeing that. My brother had seen it because he lives in France before and he told me, He's like, there's a scene. And I was like, I know what you're talking about because of the trailer. But he's like, the warm is massive. My only complaint about these whole entire scenes, but I feel like it gives something to it. They're just so dark. But yeah, it's nighttime. You also don't want to make it too bright. You want to keep kind of the surprise of the warm. And I feel like Paul and the warm have a little bit of bonding there. So this was this was one of the things I was the most... Uh, anxious or uh, excited about seeing is what's the design of the worm going to be? Um, because I will admit, when I was first reading the novel, I could never quite decide exactly what this thing should look like. You know, is it like an earthworm? Is it like a snake? Is it like a uh, electric eel? I mean, I couldn't quite picture what it is. But what I love about what Villeneuve has done here is he mentioned one time, and I think uh, this is an article early on, that they spent a year designing this thing and it needed to feel and look ancient. And, and once I had that in my head and just seeing how incredibly uh, massive this thing is and how it actually, if it were strong enough, it really could move through the sand like it was kind of a thick kind of, kind of water. Um, but to me, it's just, it, it just nails it because the, the fear you feel as you see Jessica and Paul running from this thing and, and obviously it's, it's gaining on them. Uh, but, but Denise, he, he's, he's gentle on the audience because he, he makes it clear. Okay. Paul's going to make it. He's not going to get just eaten in one gulp, but then, like you said, Simon, there's this moment and, and especially on the IMAX screen, the camera kind of zooms in on the on the mouth of this thing, and it's just like this super low guttural like sound, and it's almost like the it's almost like the worm is speaking to Paul, almost like it's almost like it's giving deference to him or something. Even though I know that's just my own interpretation, but and then you hear the thumper far away and it turns. So it's this really interesting combination of something's going on here between Paul and this incredibly massive ancient creature, but then is it going to kill them? Is it going to eat them? And then, you know, you're, you're relieved of that fear because it turns and follows the thumper. So, um, you know, going back to the, the comment that you had, you made Simon about how dark it is, having seen this on a number of different screens in different theaters now, um, the IMAX screens that I saw it on, the night scenes were brighter. I could see more detail of, of the, the sandworm and the teeth and everything. Hmm. But my most recent viewing was on a regular size theater and it was so dark, I almost couldn't see the sandworm. So I don't know, I don't know, maybe someone who knows theater mechanics better than me would be able to explain that. But it is supposed to be at night. I understand that. But uh, yeah, I, I love the design of the sandworm and I thought it plays accurately and it also feels real to me 
honestly, I, probably the most accurate version will be what we see. You know, HBO Max streaming has its you know issues with you know internet speed and everything. But when we get the actual home release on on Blu-ray and 4K and everything, I think that'll be the most probably the most accurate on your own you know TV and whatnot if you have that. But uh, I thought it was great. And then of course there's this moment where the thumper calls it away. And uh, I just can't get over how amazing the, the sand effects are in this. And you mentioned it, it is like a thick water, like it, it acts and moves like the ocean. And it's, it's, it's just so fluid. It's amazing. I can't get over that. And Guillermo del Toro had a conversation with Denis Villeneuve where he was talking about that. He was like, how did you do that? He was like, but like practically right and he and and talking about the worm he was like how did you capture the mouth like that and they're like he was like no it's all cg <laughs> and it's just like it is really kind of hard to believe that they it looks so real and it's just it is strictly cg so yeah certainly props to the vfx team on that and uh sorry gary you, you had touched on that a bit like it, it does feel like uh, Denis is building up some mystery with 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 worm here because you're like thinking like what what's what's happening and you know I, I i do think that there is maybe like something something going on there but i do think at this point it's you know they're, they're not trying to hint that there's a connection of like paul being able to like control worms or, or anything like that uh, but it's it's just more just the sense of you know like they 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 reach the safety of the, of the rocks and the, the worm, like obviously like it, it can't see in the, in the way that humans can see. So it's trying to determine, okay, like where, where did they go? And it's trying to sense. And then like, then maybe like do one, one strike at once. And then like, it gets called away by the, by the, the thumper. So although I think there, there is this, this sense, like trying to infer that there's something going on there, some connection, I think it's, it's really much, much simpler than that. And at least I hope that that's not the direction that they're, that they're going on. But um, th then we have the the encounter with uh, with the fremen. So basically, like uh, Paul and Jessica have reached safety, but then like as they're resting down, you see like them going uh, to the sign language. You know, like we're we're not al alone, and uh, th things uh, heat up uh, uh, quickly there. So, um, Johnny, what, what what was your takeaway from that uh, initial en encounter with uh, um, with the two of them and the fremen? Again, pretty much straight out of the book. It, the setting in particular, I thought it was like, wow, this is exactly how I pictured it. And, and the illustrations, uh, the original illustrations, um, by sure, they they look spot on. Um, I liked how the use of the hand signals, the hand signals return one more time before the movie ends, which I thought was nice. And then, of course, there is this like, you're not really sure what to think because you've heard so much about the Fremen as the audience at this point. Uh, it, it, you know, but you also know Paul and Jessica are capable. So what, what can actually happen here? And then Stilgar is quickly introduced and we were like, Hey, we know that guy. We've seen him before. And Paul kind of has the same reaction. He's like, you know, my dad, you know, I'm, I'm the Duke's son. And he has that recognition and there is a, a amount of respect there, even though, you know, Jameis, for example, is like, you know, I'm not gonna, put up with this and that's when things uh you know get pretty chippy and we do see um you know for example all these fremen they're you know we're not alone um and then suddenly it's like they're completely surrounded and you would not have known that two seconds ago that, that there was all these people in the rocks so it just it just again a nice little peek into what the fremen are capable of and especially on their home turf when they have uh, they know the land. They they know you know how quiet they can be and how to move and everything. So I thought that was great. Um, 
And then of course, getting into the actual action of the scene, which is uh, very quick, but very, uh, you know, kind of telling Lady Jessica just within seconds is has Stilgar on his knees and with the knife at his throat. And it's straight out of the book and straight out of the book with regards to how Paul kind of dips and ducks around all these Fremen and scampers up this rock face and um, he grabs the gun. And uh, I, I really liked all that. I was pretty surprised that they actually managed to execute that pretty much exactly how it was in the book. So uh, that was cool. And, uh, and there is, it kind of reflects, because earlier we see that vision of the, of the battle with the starter car uh, in the tent scene. And they, of course, in that scene, all these, you know, Fede Keen are flying through the air. They're doing flips and all this crazy acrobatics. And in this very quick moment uh, where, you know, Stilgar says, I didn't, you know, why didn't you say you're a weirding woman? Um, I mean, she just does like this flip and twist and is like all around him. Like, and he is just totally at a loss. So I thought that that was, again, a great little glimpse into what she's capable of and what they are capable of potentially teaching the Fremen, uh, if they so choose to uh, form some sort of alliance. So I thought that was pretty neat. And, and again, J- Lady Jessica getting just another little extra you know, boost there of, of badassery before the, the movie kind of wraps up. And before the others give their thoughts, I, I wanted to emphasize like the, the situation that they actually find themselves in. Like j- just just imagine if, if this wasn't Paul and Jessica, but yourself, like you're like a an off-order who's come and somehow you're you know your ornithopter has crashed in the in the desert and you come across Fremen. You know, th- that's that's basically the, the end for you because they're 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 basically going to like take your take your water like you're you're an outsider like you have no use to them like the only use they basically say that flat flat out like the only mm-hmm. use that you can can give them is is the water inside you like when when Jessica tries to like say like you know we're we're powerful we can do things and <laughs> you know so it's just like clear like how like harsh how um, uh, this this culture is and like what what a dangerous situation this would have been for anybody else. Yeah, the thing that uh, first stands out to me in this in this scene, uh, the sequence is the contrast of of how Jameis has been this person in Paul's dreams and prescient uh, visions that is like his friend, his guide, his his assistant in in some ways, and yet the first real interaction that we see or or the first action we see from Jameis is just this intense aggression and rejection of, of both Paul and Jessica. And, and so in that moment, what happens as I'm watching the film, especially the first time, is the contrast and the, wait a minute, Paul's vision of this guy is off. Like, that's not who this guy is. This guy is a threat. So um, that, that was one of the things that, that really stood out to me. And then um, this is very accurate uh, to the book and was executed almost, almost flawlessly. And, and I, I just really, I think you made a great point, Marcus, that if we want to think the Fremen are, are pushovers, uh, you know, that's not the case. This is a really rugged, these, these people know how to survive in the most inhospitable conditions known, known to man. So um, but yet we do see how incredible the training, the Benny Jesuit training and body control and muscle control enables Jessica to, to best uh, Stilgar. And uh, I, I even love that Stilgar's responses is almost word for word, word for word from the book. 
And sometimes when I hear the words coming from the book and the dialogue, it just just kind of warms my heart. So, uh, yeah, this is this is well executed. I agree with Garen. I get those warm, fuzzy feelings, too, when it's stuff from the book on the big screen. Um, here's something interesting about Jameis. Obviously, he's not Paul's friend. But going back to Buddhism, there is a phrase that says the people that challenge you the most are your friends in faith. And this is Paul's faith. Again, you know, I, I'm sure we can talk about this this last five, ten minutes, whatever it is. For hours. I also love that Johnny doesn't care. She really does not care about Paul. She's like, here, here's a knife. Die on early. Good luck. You're probably going to be dead. Like she has no interest in him until the very, very end. Uh, I think the fighting is amazing. I still love that it's a little bit dark and they're like, let's wait until morning. I was like, okay, good. It's not going to be completely dark during this final battle. It's a great scene and I'm happy that the movie ends at this point. Originally, when I heard there was two movies, I wanted to end where we started this episode. I wanted to end when they get out of the tent. You know, that's where I wanted. But I love that we went on this journey. And I've heard people say, that last 20, 40 minutes is so slow. But you need that. You need that for the big climax that will happen with the final battle. I think it's amazing. And... The sound design as Paul fights, you know, the sleeper has been awakened. You know, you hear all the voices, you hear everything. This is just a small, small preview of what is coming. So if you guys enjoyed the last, like I said, 20, 10, 15 minutes, whatever, this is more of that in part two. This is where Paul puts on the big boy steel suit and starts being the Paul that we love and fear at the same time. There is that moment of real, like, I guess a revelation to some degree when Chani actually comes and offers him the Chris knife. And it's like, Oh damn. Like, <laughs> I guess this is happening now because that's what he saw. That's part of what he saw in the tent. That's really, and of course he saw Jamis in the, in the thopter, but this specific item is now arrived and it's like, you know, we talked about the point of no return earlier in the still tent, because that is when he is like full blown away, like as awakening with those visions and seeing what could happen, what can happen and accepting this knife. And there's that moment where he's like, Hey, Chani. And she's like, mm, what? <laughs> and he's like, I'm telling you, she hates him. At this point. It's like, yeah, she she certainly doesn't have any, you know, feelings or thoughts about him as a human being at this point. But there's that moment where he's just like, it's a hesitation. And you're wondering, like, what is he going to say? Like, what is he going to, like, what's he going to ask? Or is he going to try to reveal something? And he ends up saying nothing and just like kind of hangs there. And I think that's, that's great. And, uh, and then of course it goes into the fight and it's, it's just very simple. It's very, it's, it's, rough and tumble and it's kind of like there's this you know it's this understanding that uh, well what eventually he the understanding comes to is that this is to the death like paul cannot avoid this it, it's similar to w this one life he cannot avoid taking if he wants to continue on the path just as there are many 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 other lives that he cannot avoid 
being ended if he continues on this path. So it's, it's a microcosm of this greater possibility. And when that, you mentioned the sound design of this scene, when he does get beaten up, his nose is bloodied. He's on the ground. He realizes that he will not get Jamas to yield. He has to kill him if he wants to, to survive, but knowing what, what the possibilities are, knowing what can happen and committing to that path. And there's a Bene Gesserit voices saying, you know, Paul Atreides, you, you has to die, you know, uh, Equizat's Haderach to, to rise. And it's like this build up, and the music is crescendoing and it's just like, Oh my God, like this is it. This is, there's no putting the stopper back in this once this is done. So there's that little back and forth. The Jamas makes his move behind his back and, and uh, Paul ducks and, and, and dives out of the way and then kills him. Um, and I love there's a tiny little tender moment that you could almost blink and miss it. But you see in the vision earlier when he was on the ground dying after being killed by Jamas, Jamas was holding his hand and kind of squeezing it. And then there's this moment when Paul reluctantly kills Jamas, he goes down and kneels. And of course, he, there's nothing happy about it. There's nothing good about it. He's not he wishes he hadn't done it, but he grabs his hand and like is kind of with them as he has his last breaths and, and, and dies. Going back to the, that interaction between uh, Paul and Johnny and uh, uh, Dini had talked about this in, uh, in some of the interviews about, you know, how, how are they going to convey this? Because they've basically been building this up from Paul's perspective, because like he's been like having these, these visions of, of, of Johnny for, uh, you know, for, for years and like, in, in a sense that he knows her, but like here it becomes clear that it's, it's all been, been one way. Like, you know, like none of that connection was, was on, on Chinese side. And, you know, as, as Simon, you, you're, you're saying like, you know, she, she doesn't think positively of him at all. Like uh, she, she's, she's not impressed. You know, she, she makes it clear, like, I wouldn't have let you, let you hurt my friends. So all, all this like connection that, that Paul feels like, you know, that there, there, it's not a real, real connection, you know, that that's, that's going to be uh, uh, come come later, but it's just like uh, yeah, what was uh, interesting how they they basically made that 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 uh, clear that that uh, um, you know basically his dreams are not necessarily re reflecting on on the full reality. I really like the moment, and I don't really recall this from the book, but I really like what Denise done with this, where. Uh, so Chani hands him the Chris knife, they have a little uh, exchange, and then they both start kind of walking toward where he's going to fight. But before they start walking, it's like Paul wants to say something, almost like he wants to say, you know, I know you, or <laughs> he wants to say more because he has this connection to her, like you said, Marcus, but she doesn't have it. She's not there. She doesn't think anything of him at this point. She knows he's going to die. So, um, but I like that pause on his face where he he wants to say something, and she looks at him like, you know, are you what? And he's like, never mind. You know, I just I love that because it's it's underscoring what you just said, Marcus. About even though he's had all this vision stuff of her a lot, it means nothing. There's not a relationship there yet. So I, I thought I like that part. Touching on on the fight again, that that was also like really authentic how they handled it because you, you see that that, um, that that's not uh, mentioned explicitly but like in the in the book it talks about like how Paul's used to the fighting which which shields and uh, now now like that he's facing someone in combat w w without shields you know like it's sort of like off and the, the Fremen think that he's he's toying with Jameis and like Silver actually actually say that is, is he toying with him and you know but um 
Yeah. So, so that, that that was that was really really authentic. But you you definitely feel that that Paul is 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 hesitating to uh, to to take that that final action and 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 kill him. And like you do have that that the, the thing like you know like as uh, the the Paul Trades must uh, must fall because it's harder to rise. Like th- this is like uh, you know like whereas the transformation had had. Uh, had 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 started earlier. This is really like the the, the death of of Paul, and uh, you know he's he's basically rising as as this new thing. He's he's basically gone past that that point like where he could potentially stop some of those events that he was seeing in the future. But now now it's, it's too late. Like you know it's 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 going to continue r- regardless of of what what happens next. Basically, at, at this point, it's like Paul's been fully accepted into Fremen, and we we get that that scene that we had seen all the way back in the, in the first trailer about like Paul, like he's he, he's 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 killed uh, killed Jameis, and like the Fremen are are touching him, and like as as you were just uh, mentioning, Johnny, like he's uh, you know said said it clear, like you know like he he's gonna gonna stay with with them, and like you know uh, be be what what comes after after that. Um, but basically, he's he's entered this this new world, and then we get that those final moments of the movie where they they walk onto into the desert, and uh, they you, you see like the the reveal of, of the sandworm rider, and like for the people who are new to this, you know, they realize, oh, okay, like so they're, they're riding the worms, you know, and uh, and then you have the, the the line from 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 Chani there, and it's it's so different than what we had seen just a few minutes earlier like you you know like you, you felt that uh shani was was really really harsh uh you know like a feral warrior almost but like here you see like a different side of uh, of her uh so that, that there was that contrast here and then you have the the interaction and you know the you have the on, on how paul is, is look, looking out and he has has a smile but like jessica looks more concerned so, final thoughts on the on the ending, uh, Simon. Um, speaking of Paul's little smile, I think it's kind of him being. I can maybe trick these people. Maybe they'll start believing in me. I do think it is kind of weird that Shawnee goes from "I hate you, go away from me" to be like, "Hey, this is only the beginning. We're going to go somewhere, and it's all be friends." It's, I, but I love it. I love how it ends. It is the ultimate tease. For what comes next, you know, for Paul Atreides, Jessica, and also Jessica is probably wondering in her head, is it finally happening? Is my son going to do what he was meant to do? There's a lot you can take from this scene. I know Johnny's been saying it for a while, but a lot of these scenes we can go back and look at when part two comes out and hopefully Messiah, you know, and children and whatever, but see like, they were really setting up a lot of stuff. And I think Timothy from the little boy that we saw in the beginning of the movie, you know, has shown just character in his performance. You know, the first scene we see of him, he's this shy little kid that doesn't want to wake up and, you know, has breakfast with his mom. We're like, okay, he's trying to use this voice. And now he's a badass. He's literally a murderer. You know, and he's, <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's, he's gone, you know, he's totally crazy now. <laughs> and it's interesting. And it's, you know, everything in this movie is amazing. We can still talk about it, I'm sure, for another six review of each scenes. And we've skipped a lot of stuff, but I love this movie. I'm interested in seeing where it's going. And that line, 
This is only the beginning. It's so true in so many ways. Um, I I really like that this this movie ends um, with a, a little bit of an up, but it just totally leaves you hanging, right? Because it's it's almost like those last uh, words from the actors are, you know, I, I my my path is is into the desert, right? Well, it's 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 for us as the audience too. It's like we're about to go into this new unknown world that we've learned a little bit about, and we we know. We know the dangers, but it's it's going to be a whole new experience in part two. And then, you know, the way Chani delivers that and uh, it's only the beginning. I don't I don't think that's in the book, to my knowledge, but it, it's really she's speaking to us in a sense. You know, she's like, there's so much more to come. So, um, you know, I, I felt like there was a little bit of a, a blend of, of Hollywood and Frank Herbert in this last sequence. But every time I see the shot with the Fremen riding the sandworm, because at first it's it's a it's a distant shot, and your eyes are trying to make sense of what's happening. But then as it it closes in on that, you're like, oh my gosh, there's a guy riding that thing, you know, and you you see him like almost like a horse, and and <laughs> and it's just like, oh my, what? How how are they doing this? You know, it it just opens up this whole new world of that could be desert power, right? I mean, it, it's just a huge foreshadowing, but it, it's a great way to end a part one of a part two film, of a two part film, right? So I, I agree with the decisions around it. Um, I noticed in the last time I saw it at the theater, there were some people right around me that were just like, what? Like they, they, they couldn't believe it was ending like this. And then there were other people that were just like, wow, I can't wait for the next one, you know? <laughs> so I think you're going to have a differences of opinions on how that was, how that ended. But, but I think it's giving us enough to know a lot of cool stuff is ahead. I think this ending is so dark when you really think about it uh, and go like beneath the surface. And, and Simon was talking about that a little bit more. And, and, and you, Garen, uh, this is, that those look, the look on their faces, it really says it all because Chani and there's they, that shot is the vision. That is a shot that he has seen time and again of her with the sun behind her and her looking with her, her headdress kind of in the wind. It, and he, the way he looks and smiles and like looks up, it's like, he knows it's happening. He's like, it's finally coming true. And the fact that he is, it's like the most like, and, and even his eyes, the way he's lit and everything, like he has a kind of sinister look to him, even though he's smiling and he is the the hero, quote unquote, we've been following this entire time. And then of course I thought it was brilliant and perfect to end it with uh, the final shot or close up of any of the characters is of Lady Jessica. And it is her going from kind of like smiling and almost like an awe of the worm writing, which is amazing. Uh, and then looking over and being and like her smile just completely drops off her face. Like it is not a happy jubilant, uh, you know, feeling of relief or anything. It's like, Oh my God, like there's uh, impending uh, carnage waiting to happen. As we were all talking about, like it's, it's a perfect end of a story arc because you get like the, the arc of, uh, of Paul, Paul Trades, like uh, going from a, like a boy teenager and now becoming a, uh, a man so like in terms of like narrative it, it makes sense to cut this way and i'm i'm glad they didn't try to fit in in more because i wouldn't want them to rush like all that world building like in the in the ch and all the other other stuff you know we, we have plenty of of time to explore it in the, in the sequels but it, it at the end time it, it it does 
like uh, leave uh, so much to think about. Like, uh, you know, we, we were talking about, like uh, John, you were mentioning the, the sinister aspect. And I think that there, you know, you're, you get the hints of like multiple things hap- happening in, in Paul's mind. Like you, you see, okay, like he realizes, uh, okay, like I'm going to be using the Fremen in, in, in a way, like I'm going to be uh, in a position, like we're going to be using that, that the superstition or the myth or what that they're referring to otherwise. And that's going to, in, in, enable me to like regain uh, like my position like as uh, as Duke and like uh, eventually uh, going going beyond that. But then there's there's also that that element of you know he's been building up all this this connection to to Chani through his through his visions and it's a really special connection even though it's like one sided at, at this moment. Like you know th- that's something that that draws draws him like further into this path and like as as you're saying like it, it is really. Uh, really sinister in, in that way but it's uh yeah there's so much uh going on there and i think even just so, those those few minutes we'll, we'll be revisiting that that in the in the uh, in the future like leading up to the, to the next movie and yeah we, we'd, we'd love to hear what um what everybody else else thinks like are, are there any uh like uh final thoughts that, that that you have like in terms of specific scenes that we've we discussed are there any questions that you feel are, are still open that you'd like to explore like uh, j- just let us know in the comments where, wherever you prefer so once again thank you for this journey don't worry the podcast is not over to quote the movie again this is only the beginning um you can find me on social media at s dowdy pretty much my first initial last name um would love to hear what you guys think and thank you for subscribing Jirani Sobchak, uh, yeah, thank you so much for supporting the podcast and enjoying the show. We love to hear everyone's feedback and, and your comments. And even if they're criticisms, we, we certainly need those and, and look to uh, improve the show for you. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm loving the community as it's growing and will surely grow uh, even more in the next couple of years. I, I, there's a lot left to talk about and whether it's the books, potential shows, uh, you know, part two and beyond that with movies. I, uh, I'm just glad that we have, you know, Marcus has kind of created this platform with do news, uh, net. And I think that, uh, I, you know, certainly appreciate it. It's come a long way from when he first contacted me <laughs> and I was like, Hey, would you be interested in like anything? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, sure. Uh, and so I definitely couldn't have uh, imagined this and this is certainly, you know, not the end. We're going to be doing these episodes, uh, regardless of what we talk about, but this is just recapping the movie in this way has been a lot of fun and I've really enjoyed it. And thank you all for watching. Yeah, this is Garen. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dune Companion. Um, I've just absolutely loved this. I remember a year before the movie came out, you know, knowing people were going to be excited about this story that I've loved for so many years. And so just being able to, to talk with, with all these guys about this book and about this movie in particular now, is just it's just so much fun to me and so i've loved all the participation not only from from everyone here but also those who watch and support us and and make comments uh yeah any comment positive or negative it it, it it's good everyone doesn't agree on everything um there's different interpretations of this story uh, i'd love to hear any of your thoughts so so thanks for supporting us yeah, this is uh, Marcus Gabriel, uh, editor at DoNewsNet.com. And um, yeah, I just wanted to take a moment. I mean, like whether it's the, the, the website or the, or the podcast or what we've been doing on, the, on social media, like it's, it's definitely been a, 
big, big journey for, for for me and all the all the other people. So I just want to say uh, th- thanks for the support and like uh, yeah and like l- letting us know what what you're interested in. So just like keep keep um, yeah s- sending us your your thoughts or are there things that you'd like to see uh, see more of? Like are there 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 are things that uh, uh, in terms of different types of content you'd like to see like that's definitely something that we're going to be exploring in the in the coming years as as we like wait together and prepare for the for doing part two and as uh, others have alluded to there's going to be the tv series hopefully some uh games coming out so yeah this, this really is uh just the beginning and really excited to have you all along for the ride we hope you've enjoyed dune talk remember to like subscribe and turn on notifications so you know when the next episode drops stay tuned to dunenewsnet.com and add us to your social feeds be the first to hear breaking news and reviews